The stories we have told so far in Appalachia and Flint and Detroit obviously ignore the first nations of these territories, the first stewards of the rivers, the lakes, the forests, and the mountains. As the original water warriors, indigenous people remain active in the struggle for environmental protection, putting their bodies on the line in places like Standing Rock, framing for all the non-negotiable status of clean water as a critical and irreplaceable natural resource. Despite the eradication and displacement of native peoples from these lands in wars of colonial conquest, we insist on locating ourselves within a traditional understanding of water as life, in contrast to the modern notion of water as commodity. I'm Desiree Blutenthal. And I'm Grace Gibson, and this is Poison and Power, The Fight for Water, a moral courage project a production of the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice. Episode 5, Everything Downstream. The indigenous perspective is essential to gaining a robust sense of the right to clean water in the United States and for the environmental movement as a whole. In the United States and across the West, there is a prevailing belief of the natural world and its resources as properties for human consumption. While the traditional indigenous understanding posits the earth as a living thing, deeply interconnected with humans, this belief creates duties and responsibilities between humans and the earth, and an obligation to live your life according to these responsibilities, like avoiding pollution or the overuse of resources, or destroying land and water sources despite convenience or savings and costs. While their cultures and environmental circumstances differ vastly, Indigenous groups and individuals across the United States have brought special attention to the need for an ethos of care and respect for the Earth and its resources. To not treat animals, land, or water like disposable resources, but as essential parts of the ecosystem. An extension of humankind, whose fates are inextricably tied together. In order to get a fuller perspective of Indigenous-led environmental movements around land and water, we widened our search beyond Michigan and Kentucky talking to Guy Jones, Shelley Corbin, and B.J. McManama, three activists who center the environment and their indigenous identities in their work. Shelley Corbin is a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and works for the Sierra Club and other environmental organizations to empower communities to combat pollution from oil and gas infrastructure with a grassroots approach. The idea of connection between humanity and the earth came up again and again in our conversations. The perspective that nothing truly goes away in nature. Oil waste spills into rivers, chemicals pollute the ground, and the results reflect this connection. The pollutants and chemicals we put into the earth and water always intentionally harm the plants, animals, and humans that live in those places and drink that water. The earliest memories that I have in terms of um, land and, and water, I grew up in North Central South Dakota and I, I was raised by uh, my grandparents. My grandfather, he was a politician and he was also a rancher. And so he, we had approximately about 75 head of horses. We also had about 30 head of buffalo. So we were very much connected to the land. Going out, feeding the horses and getting up and pushing the sun up, sort of speak, and, and acknowledging the way of life was kind of like this daily ritual that we had that we had to do, take care of our responsibilities to, to feed our, our livestock, so to speak. We had chickens and my grandmother, um, she gardened every year. And so 
getting up in, in the middle of the morning and, and, and getting that hay out and, and going to check the chickens for eggs and, and to go and, um, you know, plant our turnips and our, and our radishes and our beets and, and um, was, was basically that connection to, to the land, to the soil, to the water is what essentially really grounded me in that we get our substance and our life from our mother earth. And that way of life that our culture knows, like that indigenous cultures know, that's very much a, a, a it's not just a practice, it's, it's, a, it's that way of life. It goes greater than that, that there's this constant awareness and acknowledgement of, of where these things come from. So, so from the honey in my tea, to the, to the leaf, to the water, all these things came from, from something that was at one point living and or is still living. And then we drink it and that gives our body sustenance that it needs and, and, and it nourishes us. And the, so there's a level of respect that goes into what keeps us alive and what, what we essentially take. Having that constant acknowledgement, it, it's, it's like kind of just there. It's not really like I'm saying I acknowledge this. It's like, it's part of life. It's like an everyday, it's a habit. It's, it's something that just happens and people are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, this is what I normally do. And so once again, like those things, um, knowing and, and, and having the beliefs that, that we, that we do, that, that I do, that stem from, from knowledge from back long ago and appreciating and, and the way that we show up in prayer and, and know, knowing that all things are, are essentially part of life. So from the thunder, from the thunder beings that come from the West and, and how we, how we show up every day. And when it does rain, there's like an appreciation. So it's almost like the earliest memories that I, that I have are, are getting to know these life forms and then once again, learning to appreciate them and how they show up and, and, and how that does provide us with life. It's almost like not a choice to do this work, but more so it's the way of life and that we all have it in us to acknowledge that this is not just, you know, a brown issue, a black issue, a people of color or, or impacted community issue. It's a human issue. It's a, a life issue because once again, we all are connected. What we eat and the DNA and, and the trees and the oxygen and the weather and, and how we use the land and, and all this stuff, it's, it's, it's so interconnected and it's bigger than us. This wasn't just a, a choice in terms of this is my job and I choose to do it. No, this is a way of life and this is a right that we must fight for and continue to advocate for. Because like this is like I said, it's a way of life for us. But ultimately, you know, more people need to be aware of of essentially how they could how they survive, how they live, right? Just the simple concept of just making these connections and saying, How how do I sustain life? And then I feel like more this movement would then kind of catch on with these with younger generations. And I myself, I'm you know, I'm not in college. I'm 31. And so like, essentially it's like, it's our, it's our efforts to continue this education piece. And then not just that, but lead into actual behavior change. That's actually going to be effective 
for these communities, A, that are being targeted, but majority of these cities and like, I mean, we're talking big behavior shift. It's hard. It's difficult. People have to essentially let a piece of themselves, right? And look at themselves and say, man, like a little piece of me has to, has to go away, has to die, right? In order for, for another part of me to live, giving up, whether it's position, power, lifestyle, that has to change. Something has to give. And I don't think we are at that place where the majority of society wants to look at it that way. If there's anything the history of water and the environment in the United States has taught us, it's that many in the United States, particularly those in charge of the management and conservation of resources, don't have a sustainability mindset. Guy Jones, a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation, is a leader in the Ohio indigenous community, working on projects related to everything from the environment to anti-racism to housing. Recognizing the connection between issues stemming from the same sources of white supremacy, wealth disparity, and more. But it was in 1989 is when I first uh, got involved in regards to anything environmental. And it was, um, we had contested a 36 inch natural gas pipeline that was running across southwestern Ohio. And at that time, it was going to be running through some burial sites, some uh, sacred sites that Ohio is rich in these sacred sites. And, you know, the destruction of these sites, you know, the, a lot of the history was going to be lost. But it just, uh, I got involved because just a blatant disrespect that these companies were having in regards to these sacred sites. And, but it was once I got involved, I'd begin to really dwell into the impact, the overall impact of what these pipelines were doing in regards to not only you know, the land, but, you know, the water. And, you know, and, and even at that, most people don't realize the gases that are, that these pipelines emit and the emission of them, these um, toxic fumes that get released into the air. And it was a really enlightening experience for me. So I began to get myself involved because this is where I was living. You know, at that time in 1989, I was married, I, was, I had children. And I'm like, my God, this is, you know, this is what I'm exposing to my children. People, one guy, he said, so how is it that you're so involved with everything? And I'm like, because everything is connected. Everything is connected. I said, when you think about water, what is water? Water is H2O. Now, all the brilliant minds in the world, we can't make water. We know that it's H2O. But can we make it? No, we can't. We cannot make water. Water is a gift that is given to us. And that gift, where does that gift come from? It comes from creation, our creator. So yes, you recognize the fact that we have a problem. We have to make the change. If we don't make the change, life is going to go and the essence of life as we know it is going to go away. And only a certain few. And you know, right now, there's a privileged, there's a privileged class of people. And they're doing stuff at your expense. 
and your children's expense and your grandchildren's expense. And they can't even, all that wealth, they can't take it with them. But it, they're not concerned. You know, they're not concerned. With BJ, Shelly, myself, you know, um, you'll find us on the front line when it comes to the environment, when it comes to water. You'll find us on the front lines when it comes to human rights. The current state of affairs promotes pollution of our natural resources. Our economic system rewards those who waste more for less cost. Our government supports oil and gas companies at the expense of innovative and sustainable new technologies. For BJ McManama, a campaign organizer with the Indigenous Environmental Network for over 20 years, the Indigenous Perspective offers a different model, one focused on interconnection and long-term sustainability for both human beings and the earth. Okay, I guess I'm the next. Um, my name is uh, BJ McManama. I use she, her pronouns. I work for, I'm a staff member of the Indigenous Environmental Network, campaign organizer. I am a descendant of the Seneca Nation. Um, I grew up in the southern tier of New York State, our territory, and then sometime in the early 70s moved south to West Virginia. And um, I've been here in this area in North Carolina for the, most of my life. So uh, my work is in forest protection, and uh, most recently in the last year, I've gotten involved in the opposition of the petrochemical hub here in the Ohio River Valley, you know, because it's my home, and this is where my kids were born and raised, and my grandchildren, and this is our home place. So defending our homelands is traditional and part of our responsibility. You know, one of the things that my grandparents taught me, and it was the rule of the house, rule of the home, was that everything got treated with utmost respect, especially the animals, because they gave their lives for us. So even in death, it had to be swift and as and the least painless as possible. And water was a it was, you know, it was a huge issue as. A farmer. I also was taught, you know, that we respect the water. We uh, only use what we need. I'm just going to say a couple things. Um, you know, Guy and, and Shelly have a, a really broad and, and, and focused at the same time look at, at who we are and what we do. And, you know, Guy and I are, I don't know exactly, I won't say is my age or we're exactly the same age but when I grew up my grandparents grown up they had lived the great depression I mean the you know the dust bowl and all that stuff so we lived very um sustainably I still can't throw out a paper bag I, I can't throw out a glass jar you know I have to find uses for these things you know and and we do but overall we as people, everyone needs to demand from the corporations, from the people who make things, from the people who sell us things, that everything that we do lasts for as long as it can. And if it can't, if it gets broken, maybe we can fix it. You know, we used to have cobblers or shoe guys in town where we could get our soles or our heels replaced on our favorite pair of boots. I don't, I don't know if you can even find one anymore. And, 
and the shoes, I tried to take some in a few years ago, and the guy just looked at me, he's like, I can't fix these. So I used Gorilla Glue, worked for a while. But everything that is, that is being made now in the, on the engineering boards, on these drawing boards, it is engineered in to fail. Cars, air conditioners, toasters, computers, cell phones, all of it has a failure date. It's called mean time between failure. I know because I worked in this engineering field for a while, well, nine years. So we've got to stop that. We can't even fix our own cars. I barely find where to put the oil in my car. I mean, because we've got computers and this and that, and that's intentional. It's an intentional thing to, to make sure that you have to go back to the dealership or at some point, even the dealership or the, the mechanics can't fix it and it has to be tracked. This keeps the economy moving. This keeps the economy growing. And that's what's killing us. So we have to start talking about this with people. We have to start, and Shelly talked about it, changing our mindset. You know, we have to start, people have to start making decisions. And, and, it's, and in the long run, it'll make our lives easier, it'll make our lives healthier. It'll make our lives easier without, with less stress. So yeah, the water, the land, the, you know, it's always been part of my life. It's always been part of who I am. I can't separate it. I said I was late because my babies were in my livestock. They were the deer that come and feed in, in our, in our area. And winter, I, one winter was really bad. So we started feeding them and now we have like four generations, the fourth generation coming and bringing their babies. And so it's a relationship. Yeah. I mean, it's always been part of me and I live here. This is my, this is my home now. And so I fight for it because this petrochemical hub and this fracking and this, this destruction for just pure greed is uh, unconscionable. And I can't, I can't, that's my cat knocking everything off my desk. Um, I just can't stand for it. So instead of gardening and petting my cat and rocking on the porch and playing with my grandkids, here I am. And I'm still working and I'm glad to be able to do it too. For BJ, this fight has taken her across different social justice movements, from protesting strip mining and promoting Native American history in West Virginia, to meeting with other indigenous South American groups in Peru and Central Mexico. Still, BJ says, much of her work always ties back to water. Everything relates, everything we do relates to water. Um, I started uh, my forest work, forest protection, protecting our forests from genetic engineering and clear-cut logging and the water, the water is gathered and protected and shielded and by the forest, by the trees, by, the, by everything that's in the forest. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way for the tree, you know, it's just, it's just where it starts, right? If you have a watershed, you want a healthy forest around that watershed. So, you know, some of my first work way back like in 2000 something or other, when I was working, I was a delegate for um, the Indigenous Environmental Network. We, there was two delegations from here up in North America, down into South America and Central America to meet with, uh, in Central South America, it was the Shipibo people along the Ukulele River. 
they were working to restore their sacred fish. It was kind of like their, our buffalo, right? Or our deer. Um, European trawlers had come in and almost wiped out this fish. It was a paichi. They used everything. So that was connected to the water. And the next one was in Chiapas, Mexico. They were working to restore their native cichlids, and which is another fish. And and then shortly after that, I started working with the um, Canadian tar sands because up in Athabasca, the water, the rivers up there are being polluted by the tar sands, by the mining. And our, one of our kind of signature lines, if you will, is everyone is downstream. So it doesn't matter where you are, the water connects us. The final voice in this episode comes from Megan Hess. Rural Organizing Director for We the People of Michigan, the statewide progressive organization founded by Art Ray as the third, whom we met in episode three. Megan describes how her own personal and cultural journey of exploration led her to fight for environmental justice. My name is Megan Hess. Uh, I live in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula. I'm, there's two peninsulas in Michigan, and I'm in the upper one, kind of on the far eastern end next to Ontario. You know, indigenous peoples called uh, the Anishinaabe people have been living in this place for thousands of years, um, also known as the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. I think of myself as a, a dual citizen of sorts because I live in the United States. But I'm also a part of the Sioux Tribe of Chippewa Indians, which is a sovereign nation of Ojibwe people. I'm also the Rural Organizing Director for We the People Michigan, and we're an organizing organization, um, meaning the work that we do within our communities is about developing the capacity for community organizing. You know, our work is um, in the service of racial and economic justice, because in Michigan, like in a bunch of other places in the United States and definitely around the world, there's a set of political and social elites who benefit off the backs of the working class people, black, brown, native, and immigrant communities. And we believe that if we can build enough power within and also across these communities through organizing, that we can change the material conditions for our people. So we organize um, more succinctly, we organize within and across race and class to build and build power. I joined the organization uh, as an organizer in 2017. That was the same year that we launched um, and have since built a team to continue building organizing capacity, both in rural and urban Michigan. And, you know, honestly, before then, I didn't consider myself an organizer. Uh, I didn't know that there was a term for the kinds of things that I was doing as a volunteer, pulling people together. I was a stay-at-home parent um, and a former journalist, and I certainly didn't have a power analysis for organizing. My start in what I now know as organizing was about 13 years ago um, with an Enbridge pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac, and the Straits are arguably the most critical waterway in the Great Lakes. This is pipeline five. But I feel like to tell you more of the story, I actually have to go back a lot farther than that. Um, to the early 1900s in Detour, Michigan, which actually is not that far away from, from where Line 5 lays now. And I want to tell you um, a little bit about my family and about my great-grandma, whose name was Orline, uh, and she was born in Detour. My great-grandma's heritage was all Native people, um, and that heritage has since been passed down through the women in my family, you know, my great-grandma, and then my grandma, and my mom, and now me. 
Uh, my great-grandma was born during a time in United States history that um, was pretty violent for Native people. You know, she was born when the U.S. had this strategic and concerted effort for whitewashing Native folks. Um, this was called assimilation, maybe a, a vocab word familiar to some people. And it began um, in the 1800s and lasted until the 1980s in Michigan, so within most of our lifetimes. Um, this was like what folks know as like the boarding school and foster care era. Um, that's what people may have heard about. And as a child, my great grandma um, left her family and was put into the foster care system with white families. And you know, I, I do a lot of reflecting and thinking about her experience there, um, even now, three generations later, because they had to have been um, unthinkably violent. You know, by the time she became an adult and got married, she was adamant that she was a white person. Um, this little brown kid just decided that she wasn't who she was. Um, and I just do a lot of thinking about like her experiences that would have made that true for her. Um, and this is something that she continued to swear until you know she died in her 90s when I was about 10. You know, and after that, for two generations, my family lost almost all of the tangible connections that we had to the tribe. This was, it was on purpose, right? Assimilation happened on purpose. It was deliberate. Um, it's the continued genocide of indigenous people. By the time my great grandma was born, the government had mostly ended um, outright murder and continued the genocide through this assimilation, which I kind of see as a spiritual and cultural murder. And, you know, our family was very nearly a victim, almost. Uh, two generations later, my mom accidentally learned that we were tribal citizens. It was unknown to us, but through census work, the tribe had kept my great-grandmother's descendants enrolled as members. And so in the late 1970s, when the state of Michigan enacted the Michigan Indian Tuition Waiver, um, which gave some Native people the ability to go to a state university tuition-free, my mom was applying to universities and she got a letter in the mail saying she qualified. Uh, and everyone was kind of floored. No one had any idea. Years later, uh, my brothers and I were school age and she sent us to our tribe's charter school that had just opened. And her small choice in that, that small action, kind of swung open a door that had nearly clicked shut for our family. Um, and it gave us a, a re-entry point to the community, to the tribal community through that school. Um, you know, I have very vivid memories of studying the language and practicing its cadence. Uh, we learned traditional practices and, you know, the smells of the sacred medicines, sage, deer, tobacco, and sweetgrass became familiar and comforting. Um, I gained there an indigenous perspective on history and science, and I, I built a lot of relationships. And today, um, I am a parent, and I have two kids who go to that same school. And my grandma um, goes to elders luncheon with other tribal elders every week when there isn't a pandemic. Um, and my mom and I have worked with a traditional healer to know and learn about the clans that we belong to. And I really you know, cherish this rebuilding and reconnecting. And there is a particular relationship that I built at uh, the school that I mentioned, but still very important to me. And it's a relationship with my middle school social studies teacher, Mrs. Easterday. I give her a lot of credit for um, radicalizing me because she taught history through the truths of Native people. A while back, it had been like years since I had seen this teacher. Um, and 13 years ago, I noticed that she was 
putting like notices in the paper and calling people together to protest that pipeline and bridge pipeline five. And, you know, at the time it was pretty critical that native people were raising awareness about just the existence of the pipeline because until then the public had been completely unaware that there was this ticking time bomb um, laying on the floor of the Great Lakes. So, you know, I would show up to protests. Um, I used to show up next to the Mackinac Bridge, which goes over the Straits, this beautiful five mile stretch. We would show up in front of the tribe's administration building in the Sioux um, and wave signs at cars who were honking in support. And, you know, like my hatred of Enbridge um, and the, my fear that the pipeline would burst absolutely was like a motivator. And yeah, you know, I showed up because I was really angry that Native people were not a part of the decision making around Line 5, that tribes had been left completely without a seat at the table, which went just wildly in the face of treaty enforced rights that we had, and against like the spiritual responsibility that Native people have to protect the water. But like deep down, you know, what really motivated me was the opportunity to show back up um, with Mrs. Easterday and to show up for my tribe's community, because I feel like every time I do, it's a, a giant middle finger to colonization. It's a giant middle finger to the forced assimilation of my great grandma and to society's idea that somehow she was better as a white lady than being herself. So, you know, that's definitely what motivates me for showing up in environmental justice work. And while I was doing some organizing to shut down line five, I also learned a lot of like valuable lessons about what power is and what it means to build it. You know, I learned that showing up at a protest with a sign can be a really valuable tactic, but that tactic in and of itself didn't add up to the power that we needed to actually achieve what we wanted, which was to shut down line five. We needed organizing and we needed a strategy that was about building power. Um, I learned that we needed cross-racial solidarity. You know, I saw white working class people in the Straits who were in the grind in the tourist industry, which is flawed, but you know, who also wanted to shut the pipeline down because their seasonal tourism jobs, which were their livelihoods were at stake. And we as native people didn't have the relationships that we needed to build power with them and increase our chances of success. I also learned that we needed an aspirational vision. You know, I started showing up in places in the central and western UP in communities that had only ever heard Enbridge talk about the absolute need for the pipeline because it guaranteed good jobs and it delivered propane to heat the homes. And I realized that, you know, we were showing up and we were saying shut down line five and these families were hearing us say that we didn't want them to put food on the table for their kids. And we didn't want them to have warm homes in the winter. And that we should not only be talking about some, shutting something down, but simultaneously about building something new that serves our people. These are the lessons that I bring with me into my work at We The People Michigan always carrying um, you know, my motivations as an indigenous person for organizing environmental justice. Megan's story weaves together two central themes. Not only is humanity interconnected with the natural world, but in order to struggle for environmental justice, we must come together from across identity groups and experiences to build collective power. This is Poison and Power, the fight for water a moral courage project. We are your hosts, Desiree Bluthenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Bridget Graham. Our musical score was composed, performed, and produced by Beck Trumbull. And the musical theme was inspired by Jillian Parker. Moral Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proust. 
next time on the final episode of season three of moral courage radio and so like these people just basically took like a three-day class like at michigan state university <laughs> like a weekend class and then you could be you know a dictator find and follow us across all social media platforms if you like what you've heard here tell some friends leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to moral courage radio so you can get the next episode as soon as it drops